Welcome to Answer the Call. I'm your host and go-to career coach, Kelsey Kemp. You're tuning in to the Job Library series, which is a bingeable collection of interviews with professionals from a vast variety of industries to help you gain the exposure and the insider info you need to find a career path you'll love. If you're excited to live vicariously through people with super cool jobs, maybe even some you've never heard of, then you're in the right place. If you're looking for step-by-step guidance on how you could identify your unique calling and actually land a job that pays you to fulfill it, then go have a blast scrolling through the nearly 50 other episodes of Answer the Call waiting for you below this series. Today's episode is all about speech language pathology with Natalie Farmer. There are so many treats waiting for you in this conversation from Natalie's endearing story of how she came to realize that she was called to this career path to the inspiring ways that she gets to impact the lives of the patients she serves and how you could know if you would be an amazing fit for this profession and how you could settle into a specialty within it that you'll love for sure. And she'll also share about the wide variety of ways speech language pathologists help patients. And let me tell you, it is far beyond the scope of helping kids over a lisp like I had when I was young. I just loved Natalie's heart for what she does and found her advice so impactful. And I know you will too. But before we dive in, I just have one quick favor to ask. No matter if you're new around here or a longtime listener, I'd love your help. Would you mind simply just tapping the stars, just one click, on Apple Podcasts to rate the show? It's seriously, it's just one click, but it actually helps a lot. It's a super quick win for you if you're a listener who wants to support the show in a tiny but mighty way. Thank you so much to those of you who have left a rating and review and shared the show and tagged me on Instagram stories. Your help really does mean so much to me. Okay, let's dive right into this conversation with Natalie Farmer. All right, Natalie, we are rolling and I am so excited to have you here today to talk about your career in speech and language pathology. Did I get that right? Because I used to think it was just like speech pathology. Do you get that a lot? Or like, what's with the extra word in there? So we cover a broad array of topics. The official title, I'm an SLP, a speech language pathologist, but I also go by speech pathologist or more commonly a speech therapist. You'll hear that. And if you're working in a school setting, you will hear all the time a speech teacher. Speech teacher. All right. Well, I'm very excited to hear you talk about your career as a speech teacher. (laughs) um, Just kidding. No need to trigger that. I'm sure kind of annoying occurrence. But first off, welcome. So excited for this. (laughs) And then two, another question I love to just start off with a little triad of like, what do you do? What are you all about? And what's a career dream of yours? But just most simply, tell us about the role that you're in now. Sure. I Currently, I work for an outpatient clinic. And it's called Inia Orthopedics and Rehabilitation. However, I'm in a little different position in that company. Within that company, they contract me into the school setting. So I work on a school contract, and I work in the public schools, but I'm for an outpatient clinic. <laughs> That's really interesting. So how does it work with the, well, I guess I am 
always excited to get way more into the details, which we will, of how your job works and how you split your time and all of that. But generally, what's the difference between a, forgive me, I have no idea. <laughs> what's the difference between a an outpatient clinic and then what you would do at a school? Is it just setting or it's a work different? Sure. I guess I'll start out with a speech pathologist works across a lot of different settings. And those settings could include an outpatient setting like we were just discussing. And that's more of a where you might go for physical therapy or occupational therapy, uh, where it's more medically based, but not necessarily within a hospital. You're not staying at the hospital. Uh, you're coming from your home to a clinical setting to receive a therapy. And then there is a hospital setting where you can have rehab therapy. Usually if you've had maybe a stroke or uh, you were in a car accident and you have a TBI or something has happened to put you in the hospital and then you need rehabilitative therapy. And then there is a school setting where you can go and work in a school. Speech therapy is required by public schools to be a service that's provided to students that need that or students that present with a delay or a disability. And then you can also have a private practice and you can work on your own. You can branch out and receive people in, in your own business and run your own show. And you're talking about career goals. I love working for the company that I work for and I, I plan to be with them for an indefinite amount of time. Forever. <laughs> as far as a career goal goes, another branch where a speech therapy can be a very, very useful tool is in, uh, we could call it hippotherapy. Hippo is Latin for horse. And so horse therapy, you're utilizing the horse as a tool. We're using the movement of a horse to trigger different parts in a person's body. It's stimulating their vestibular system. It's helping them to achieve an equilibrium. It's helping their body to work together the best that it can to achieve their goals uh, for articulation and language and uh, even into some respiratory things, cognition. It's working with their body to use the movement of the horse to improve their skills. It's not a therapy, like a therapy tool that you would use in a in a school setting or in an outpatient setting, some of those tools aren't useful for every single person. You have to find what's specific for them, and that's what the horse is. The horse would be specific for specific people, depending on their need. So that's my ultimate career goal, is to be a speech therapist that utilizes a horse for a therapy tool. And having grown up with horses and around that, that's that is a that's been a long-term goal of mine i did a rotation in grad school i can get more into that later if yeah, anybody's yeah. know about the different rotations that we have to take uh, but my pediatric rotation was in uh, new mexico at skyline and they they utilize hippotherapy as a treatment tool for them and they also provide an outpatient service it's an outpatient clinic there so anyway, oh I'm to Oklahoma and my company is on board with uh, me heading that up in, in our little niche here in Northeast Oklahoma. And I'm hoping to make that work. That's so cool. Oh, I should have asked, where are you located in <laughs> Oklahoma? Uh, I live in Venita, Oklahoma, and we are in the very Northeast corner 
Uh, we're kind of in the four states area here between in, in the corner. So cool. Okay. I wait. No, I'm stereotyping. For some reason, I was just picturing the pioneer woman on the Food Network, but she's definitely in Arkansas, I thought. Or I'm Pahuska, Oklahoma, which is oh about an hour and a half from where I live now, but 45 minutes from where I grew up. And <gasps> we all know Reed. <laughs> oh my gosh. We all know her. So y'all are best buds. You go over for like Sunday dinner, you know? Mm, maybe mm. not that best buds but we do we do know her and we do know her family are you serious I was joking but you're serious oh my gosh you actually know her oh I'm if I were you I would be working up to the Sunday dinner status so just keep me updated okay (laughs) that's amazing oh my gosh I'm just picturing like wide open prairies and I'm picturing all the horses that you mentioned like you kind of grew up around and I'm curious about your home. <laughs> oh, that's like your home. Um, what would it take for you to achieve that career dream? Is it like extra training or is it just the resources and bringing it to your area? Great questions. A little bit of both. We do need the resources. So of course you've got to have a facility. You've got to have horses <laughs> and all of the tack and the supply that come along with that. The horses are, are specifically trained for this. They're, it's not just something you just pull up out of the pasture and go and use. They know what they're doing and they have a job to achieve as well during their work day. And they're respected as so as well. You will also need, you know, like I said, it's it's for a specific type of, of need. It's very need-based. And so it's not for all people. And so we need those people to be here and be, be available for that. Speech therapy can be expensive but insurance will cover a lot of different things uh, in an outpatient setting. And so uh, that would be an option for covering costs. But as far as the the therapy session itself, utilizing a horse, it takes not just the therapist, but you also need a horse handler. And in some cases, you'll need an extra sidewalker to help that patient or that, that client. As far as the extra training goes, there are different courses that you can take. They're the best practice guidelines. They're through the American Hippotherapy Association. You can find that online and find therapists as resources. You can find courses to take. They have a level one and a level two training. And then they also have some extra certification exams that you can take and have some extra, be certified in some extra areas. That sounds incredible. Oh my goodness. Well, I hope for your sake and for the sake of all the people that you'll help that that dream gets realized ASAP. Um, So, okay. I would love to just dive in with an overview of what speech language uh, pathology really is and all the things that it must cover because, and, and I'm sure we might get into this when I ask about some misconceptions about your field, but for me, I saw a speech pathologist when I was really young. I had a lisp. And I think in my mind, it was kind of just like, learn to talk better. (laughs) But it's so many things. So can you please share about the variety of uh, different conditions that an SLP would help? Absolutely. And you are so right. When I introduce myself and, and tell somebody that I'm a speech therapist, they immediately jump to and say, oh, you work with kids. I do work with kids, that's true, but we are trained and educated to work with all ages from birth to the end stages of life. 
And so we work with swallowing is one that is very um, majorly overlooked uh, that a speech pathologist will analyze swallowing. We do different studies to analyze how somebody is swallowing and making sure that all the mechanics of their muscles and their parts are working together to achieve a safe swallow so that they're not aspirating. And so that's a medical speech pathologist would see a lot of that in a hospital setting. Also those that may work in a skilled nursing facility or a nursing home setting, a retirement home setting, they may see a lot of that with some older patients. However, it does occur with our younger patients. And so the anatomy of a geriatric patient versus a pediatric patient is, is vastly different. And you'll a lot of times see a speech pathologist that specializes, that specializes in one area over another. Uh, so swallowing is one area. We also work with articulation. That goes back to like you were talking about your S with the lisp. That's very, very common actually. And articulation is probably one of the the more broad areas that a speech therapist helps to target. We target language, both receptive and expressive language. That's uh, how somebody may understand something versus how they can get that back out. And so we can see these kinds of things in different, different ages across different settings. So in the school setting, I see this a lot of times with my younger kids that are learning how to communicate their wants and needs and they, they build up this frustration because they're not able to get out what they're wanting to communicate. They're not sure how to communicate that. And so we're able to provide them access to communication. It's, it's their right to be able to communicate. And man, can you just see their world open up whenever they have the ability to tell you that they want juice instead of milk all this time <laughs> all this time they just wanted sunny d <laughs> the angst <laughs> it's the little things for them uh, but then you get into uh, your your older patients or or your your patients that have maybe have had a stroke and it's affected their language and their output and so you're helping them to achieve what they once had you're rehabilitating what they had and then we also go voice. That's not an area that I have a whole lot of experience in, but you have um, people that may have a voice disorder of some kind and a speech pathologist would help cover that as well. Now that you've asked me all of this, I'm trying to run through my head to make sure I haven't forgotten anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure that there's just there might even be more areas than that. It seems so much more expansive as I've had. I had another friend in this profession and just her mentioning little things like, no, I actually help a lot of people learn how to swallow. I was like, whoa, <laughs> I clearly don't know um, what you really do. And and so it's exciting to learn more about any other branches. Are there any others as, you, as you've combed uh, your mind that you thought of? is a big one that I didn't step into and um, in a skilled nursing facility, they'll do a lot of, um, we'll call it a cog eval. Whenever I go to see a patient, I'll, I term it as a brain game. We're going to play a brain game. We're doing brain workouts and we're helping them to connect the wires in their brain to, to be able to communicate, but also problem solve and initiate and um, be able to create pragmatics uh, in their language. Pragmatics is a whole nother area that could be somebody that's just not, they may have a hard time understanding social language, what's appropriate, but not appropriate. When can I say something? When do I hold back? 
how do I initiate a conversation with somebody? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I am. I, I'm really surprised. Actually, I, I shouldn't be surprised. I'm not an expert in your field. Very excited to learn from you more about it though. But um, I actually really thought that it was way more about the mechanics of talking or swallowing or anything like that. But from what I'm hearing and what you're saying, like in the cognition or cognitive, oh goodness, um, aspect of it, there is a lot of work that you seem to be doing in helping people on the cognitive side of things of understanding communication and then how to give it back, how to receive it and give it effectively in a way that gives them freedom. So there's so much more on the mental side of things than I thought. Um, So I'm really curious about your own journey in learning about this field and realizing that you wanted to go into it. I'm sure that's a, a story in and of itself. And I always love hearing that from people. So how did you realize you wanted to be an SLP? And when did you graduate college and the programs you did and all of that? I love telling this story. <laughs> <laughs> so, and there may be somebody that's listening to this that can relate to this. I was in high school and they're, you know, they're pressuring you to, you know, what college are you going to go to? What major are you going to be in? And I had a really hard time with all of that thinking, I'm 17. How am I going to determine what to do for the rest of my life? I wanted to be a veterinarian. I wanted to be a a pediatrician. I wanted to, I wanted to do stuff with my horses. I thought about maybe just doing therapeutic writing and, and being some kind of therapist in that aspect. There were so many different things that I wanted to do and they were all in different areas and I wasn't sure how to combine all of that. So I spent my first two years in college just taking the gen ed courses because I had no idea which area to go go towards. I actually personally, I went to a, a junior college because I didn't want to spend all my money not knowing what I was going to do and I rope. And so I rodeoed and a scholarship to do that for my first two years. And my rodeo coach was my advisor, my academic advisor. And he sat me down one day and he said, listen, you've got to choose a path in life. (laughs) Woman, choose something. (laughs) There's so many options out there. Could you just give me five and I'll pick one? I'll be happy, I promise. He's like, that's not how this works. So, of course, I prayed over this and prayed over this and... My grandpa, uh, who has passed now, just within the past two years, uh, during that time, he had had a stroke and was in the hospital. And I saw this brilliant man. He was an engineer. He could do anything. And I saw him in the hospital, unable to speak, unable to communicate, and very frustrated that he was having a hard time reading. He He couldn't write his name. And he was... He was just beside himself and the speech pathologist came in and I happened to be there one day whenever she came by to, to do therapy with him. And I thought, what is she doing? What are all these questions she's asking? This is, this doesn't make any sense. And I left there and after a course of a couple of weeks, she had been working with him and I saw all of this improvement. And then as I started to dig into it, she let me come and shadow her. And so I got to see other patients and got to see what she was doing and let her explain the reason behind what she was doing with these people. And oh my goodness, I just thought she was an angel. So I started my junior year at Oklahoma State University in Stillwater, Oklahoma. 
and I was enrolled in the major of communication sciences and disorders. And I decided that that's what I want to be. I want to be who she is. She's in this medical setting, but she's not a doctor. She's not a nurse. She's not giving shots. She's not prescribing medication, but she is changing people's lives on a daily basis. And so I thought that I wanted to work in a hospital setting. And so that's kind of what I set out to do. My mom was a special education teacher and worked in a rural school in Oshalada, Oklahoma, Caney Valley. It's where I grew up. I went to school K through 12 there. And I decided I never wanted to work in a school. My mom's a teacher. I see that. I don't want, I don't want that. And my mom was a fantastic teacher. She was excellent at her job. I just thought that's not for me. As I dug into that a little deeper, I discovered that is for me. So let me back up. I'm, I get ahead of myself here. So oh, I no, I am so engrossed in your story. <laughs> I'm loving this. <laughs> for anybody that may be listening as far as the education part, what did I have to do to get there? So I, I was enrolled at Oklahoma State University. I completed my bachelor's. You have to continue with a master's degree, and it's very competitive to get into these master master level courses, these master programs. And so I applied to a couple different schools and in answer to my prayer, I was accepted at, at OSU and I got to stay there and complete my master's there in Stillwater. It was an excellent program. I, it was a lot of hard work. I had some top notch professors and I felt confident whenever I left there. Graduated in 2013 and then once you graduate, you have your degree, but you don't have what we call our C's. Your C's are your clinical certificate of competence, and that is awarded to you through ASHA, our American Speech and Hearing Association. It's our national association. And so you have to complete a clinical fellowship year outside of graduation where you have a supervisor. And that is where I moved to Texas and hey, I, my favorite state. <laughs> I did my clinical fellowship year in Wichita Falls and I had some great mentors while I was there. Excellent. And I was in a school setting where I did that and I fell in love with it and I, I fell in love with the schools and with the kids. And so I was, that's, that landed me back in Oklahoma when I finished that clinical fellowship year. I was able to apply and received my C's. So after that point, my name, whenever I sign my name, it reads Natalie Farmer, MS for Masters of Science, CCC, Clinical Certificate <laughs> Competence, SLP, Language Pathologist. So there oh, That must feel good. <laughs> <laughs> that is a lot of letters. Yes. So I moved back up to Northeast Oklahoma. Um, I was raised in Oshalada, Oklahoma. Uh, it's by Bartlesville, if anybody's familiar with that. And then I took a job in Benita. And so I lived there. It's only about an hour from my home, my family. And so I'm working there. I've, I've worked there now for six years and met my husband four years ago. And we've been married uh, two years on July 21st. Oh, congrats. I'm here to stay. <laughs> yeah, you're here to stay. This is your home. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. So how did you decide on your specialty though? And what does that 
look like and how does it work for someone who, I guess, to back up, do you really have to specialize or can you generalize? And what was your experience like deciding what path and setting you would go into? Sure. I should back up into grad school. Uh, in grad school, we you take courses in every area that is covered from a, by a speech language pathologist. And then you're required to do two rotations, one with a pediatric rotation and one a geriatric rotation. And I touched on my pediatric rotation a little bit earlier where I went to Skyline in Edgewood, New Mexico. And I was a speech therapist that used the horses. And then for my geriatric rotation, I completed that at an inpatient rehab. And so I worked with patients that had TBIs or strokes or that, that needed some extra help there. And so they were all inpatient during their hospital stay. I would provide therapy for them. Hey there, if you're listening to this episode right now, it's probably because you're somewhere on the range of mildly curious to high-key desperate to get out of analysis paralysis and into a job that will be an exciting and rewarding fit for your unique talents, values, and interests, which by the way, I'm here to help you do just that in record time. If we haven't met yet, I'm Kelsey Kemp, a career coach specialized in helping Christians discern their unique calling and practically land a job that pays them to fulfill it so you could have an impactful and meaningful career. Trust me, I get it. Picking a singular path out of the sea of options, then making a potential industry pivot to get into that line of work can all be insanely daunting. That's why I created the Deep Dive Career Coaching Program, so you could have me by your side, confidently walking you through each step of a career transition from start to finish. From discerning God's will for your life and what path you're truly called to take, to finding the exact job title that actually aligns with that, then getting hired for that position with confidence and speed, I'm here to be your personal career coach from start to finish. My signature two-month private career coaching program includes seven weekly coaching sessions with me, access to the library of guides and workbooks I've created to clearly guide your transition, as well as unlimited support from me in between sessions to help you nail down every single step of the practicals like your networking strategy and messaging and your resume and interviews and negotiations all help you save a load of time, stress, and dead-end job applications so you could land the job you're called to faster than you thought possible. Seriously, it could be on the other side of just two months. If all that sounds like a dream to you, then I want to formally invite you to apply for my deep dive private career coaching program. To take the first step, go to my website, kelseykemp.com coaching to learn more and book a free 30 minute consultation with me this week to objectively evaluate if this opportunity is the perfect fit for you. I only work with people who are ready to go deep do the work, and actually make a change once the path is made clear to them. So if that sounds like you and you're ready to accelerate your path to building an impactful career aligned with who God made you to be and what he put on your heart to do, then go to kelseykemp.com coaching to learn more and book a free 30-minute consultation with me this week to get started. I'll talk to you soon. Now back to the episode. 
after the, my two rotations, my pediatric rotation and my geriatric rotation, it was clear to me that while I love working with the geriatric population, the pediatric is where, where my heart is. And you'll talk to different SLPs and they will tell you different things. Their hearts are in different places. And that takes all of us to achieve what we're achieving. As far as being specialized in one area, I think I kind of dabbled on that a little bit earlier um, whenever I was talking about swallowing. Some would specialize more in a geriatric swallowing, some in pediatric swallowing. Same thing, it's across the board. A lot of SLPs will specialize in one area because there are continuing education programs that work towards those. So me personally, I spend most of my time working in a school setting. So most of my continuing education and my my continuing to learn is is driven towards the things that these kids would need and how I can best help them. However, I have worked in an outpatient hospital setting, and so I would see a adults and kids alike. I have worked in a skilled nursing facility uh, where I would see nursing home residents, both acute care and long-term care. And in those areas, I, I feel that I can provide a service. I do have the knowledge base to provide a good, helpful service to them. But more importantly, I've learned my resources. And so it's one of those things, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Yes. And, and so I have developed some great resources, different clinicians that are experts in different areas. And so when I don't have answers for somebody or I'm not able to help them to the best that of my ability or, or to the best that they need, I'm able to outsource and find somebody that can find somebody that knows more in that area that can meet the need that they have and so I can make those referrals and so that's kind of a neat thing about having such a broad practice is that we all work together to to help people yeah I guess from a really a rich set of expertises that you're able to draw from. So it does seem like from what you're saying, it is pretty natural to go deeper and deeper into a specialty and not so much just to say, I'm an SLP and like kind of stay a generalist and work with anybody at any time. Would you say that's true? Right. I would say yeah. that. And I think that we're all talking to different SLPs. For the most part, they're very type A. Okay. I consider myself a type A minus. <laughs> I like that. A, a little, a little bit of chaos is all right, but I do want my organization and I do want my structure. But comes, but with those type A kind of people, um, we are wanting to achieve perfection, which can be both great and it it can be hurtful also. And so we have to walk that line to make sure that we're not um, overstepping our bounds in certain areas and that we can provide what these people need. Yeah. And in terms of picking a specialty, it seems, of course, since you're able to get really, it sounds like good exposure in your master's program and doing all different types of subjects and making sure you have coverage on every area and then your two rotations. It seems like 
you get enough exposure to where you're able to make a pretty satisfying good guess into where you want to go afterwards. But have you witnessed people transitioning into another specialty if they're like, oh, maybe this isn't so much of what I want to do? And how doable is that? Is it kind of hard to transition or do you see it happen more often? Oh, I do. I, I'm, I see it happen somewhat. I would say it's not, it's not real, real common, but I will see um, therapists get into a school setting and be working with children with reading difficulties. And then they become a reading specialist because they're using all of their background knowledge for language and linguistics and phonetics. And they're tying that all into helping a child read at and to achieve their goals. And so I see some therapists become reading specialists. I see a lot of uh, not switching careers, but uh, co-treating in maybe an outpatient setting. So you'll see a speech therapist that will co-treat with an occupational therapist or a physical therapist. And the things that they can achieve is amazing whenever you put the knowledge base from all three of them together it's crazy to see the progress that can come from, from their work and their treatment plans. I see a lot of um, going back to that type A kind of mentality that I'm going to jump in there. I'm going to do this. I'm going to lead the way. You see that a lot in SLPs and I see a lot of them taking over leadership positions. So again, my knowledge base in the school setting, I see some of them rising above and becoming leaders in their special education departments. Some of them are going on and getting their administrative certifications and are becoming administrators in areas. There are several SLPs that I'm so grateful for that I don't even know, have not met them personally, but they make resources and they sell these resources on Teacher Pay Teacher or they have different Facebook groups that are helping to educate fellow SLPs and I'm so grateful for the people that are spending the extra time and effort to do those for us. So there's a lot of tasks to be done that are outside of the therapy room. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I always love hearing about when someone's in a kind of specific field, it could be a question for, I think, many people looking to specialize in something, especially a path that takes quite a bit of education, it could be a little scary. Like, do I really want to do this? This is quite the investment. It's not easy. If I don't love the exact path that I'm imagining I'll take right now, what are my options for other ways to branch out and still leverage it? And so I love hearing about what you've been exposed to in terms of your peers doing a lot of different things and still very much leveraging their expertise and just getting maybe more into a groove that they love even more. So uh, love hearing about that. And I also really like how you're touching on, you know, I see a lot of SLPs being that type A kind of person. Um, Makes me want to ask about what you think is kind of a really typical personality fit, the type of person you think would be a great fit and find it satisfying in this career path in terms of their personality, their qualities, maybe their strengths. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, goodness. That's broad, too. Yeah. (laughs) Because depending on which area you're going into, I'm going back to my personal 
experience. Whenever I was working in outpatient setting, I'm sorry, acute care with inpatient rehabilitation, I had a fantastic supervisor, but she, in one of my evaluations one day, she had to evaluate me as a clinician. And she mentioned that I was a little too bubbly, a little too over the top, a little too happy. And I thought, what in the world? What the heck? I thought that's how we're supposed to be. And, and her point was, she had a very good reasoning behind this, is that I was working with some traumatic brain injury patients and they, whenever you have a specific brain injury, you don't register humor or oh. you don't register, um, you're very literal and, and may not be able to interpret a metaphor of some sort. And so while I was being bubbly, it came across as offensive to them. And I had no idea that I was even doing that. And I'm so grateful for her to bring that to my attention so that I can adjust my personality to help make them feel comfortable and help, help them want to work with me. I want them to enjoy their time that's spent with me. And then, you know, you flip on over to the kids side of things. And so in the kids world, I'm their sunshine or I'm their cloud. And so if I'm not bubbly and happy, then they're not bubbly and happy either. And, and they don't put their best effort into what they're doing if I'm not all into it. So as far as personalities go, I think that it can vary. Uh, I tend to be more outspoken. I like to take charge of things. I, I follow well also, but I like to help to be a leader. Uh, I like to help support that. I have friends that are SLPs as well that are more reserved, that are more quiet, uh, that you won't hear their voice above everybody else's. And they're fantastic in what they do also. So I think that as far as a personality type, if you're wondering if this is a field for me, I think that as long as you are dedicated and you have enthusiasm and that you have a, a heart to do what you're doing, you're going to be just fine. Yes. I think that there's all sorts of positive traits or qualities or even personality types that can be associated with pretty much any profession. I think one interesting area to consider is what does someone have to be okay with or have a tolerance for, almost in the negative sense? Because I think that's actually a massive part of what makes someone a fit or not. Like, are you okay with a go, go, go kind of atmosphere? Are you being okay? Are you okay with being results driven or people connection driven? All of that. So what do you see in that sense of what makes someone a good fit for SLP in terms of what they are okay with or they have a good tolerance for? I am so glad you brought that up. I wish I would have talked about that in my last little spiel. <laughs> but I loved your last little spiel. <laughs> Absolutely. So there is a great deal of patience uh, that will come in, in working in this field. Uh, you'll have to be patient with the people that you're working with, whether they're kids or adults. You'll have to be patient with their family members. You'll have to be patient with teachers. You'll have to be patient with doctors. And, but you'll also have to be an advocate for them. And so while being patient and, and helping them, you're also a voice for them in ways that they they don't know how to communicate or they don't know the questions to ask 
to their doctor or the the parents don't know that there's an area that their child is needing extra support in, but you see it and you can help them. And so you, you walk this line of being somebody's greatest cheerleader, but at the same time being their advocate and, and having some tough conversations. So as far as being okay with things, you're going to have to be okay with having a tough conversation with a family member or with a parent. It's very, very difficult to have an IEP meeting where you're going over results of evaluations that you have done with this child and you're telling this parent that your child has a delay or you're telling this parent that your child has a disorder mm-hmm. and this is going to be a lifelong task, but here's what we can do. Here's how we're going to support them. We are on their side. Help us help you. And you will, that, those are tough conversations to have with a parent, uh, but you'll also have those with, with family members. Uh, you'll have patients that they have achieved what we are capable of doing with them. And that's a hard conversation to have. I know that there's always more. There's always more you can be doing. But as far as therapy goes, there are times where, where that has to come to an end and that's hard to close that door. You build these relationships and sometimes, and you dig so deep into some of these families that you, you become part of their family. And that's a special, special thing to do. Yeah. Wow. What a weighty position you hold with not just the patient, but you're clearly giving this picture of how involved your role is with family and how much of an implication that has for everyone that is caring for the patient that you are also caring for and how sensitive you need to be uh, I'm sure to understand how to care for everyone and how to communicate difficult things to them I'm sure that could be a tricky situation at times. What does your typical day in the life look like in terms of your schedule, like your hours and the tasks that you spend the majority of your time doing? So I'm going to talk on the school setting because that's that's where I spend the majority of my time. And I would be glad to talk on some other settings as well, but for the sake of our time here, I'll just go over the school setting. So our you know, a school day, eight to three. Uh, I typically, because of my school, they don't want me to pull these kids until 8.30. I work primarily in a pre-K through second grade elementary school, uh, and I oversee therapists that are at the other schools in our district to, you know, complete through high school. But at this at this pre-K through second, they want these kids to get in their classrooms and get their morning time and their morning routine and get their backpacks put away and get their lunch count. So that gives me until 8.30. And at 8.30, I have a schedule that's set up, <laughs> but as any school therapist will know, your schedule changes all the time because we have to revolve around the kids' schedules and the classroom schedules, the teachers' schedules, and anything that may be going on that day, they may have a special speaker, they may have a pep assembly, or school pictures. So we have to be very flexible to revolve around all of that. We will start picking up students. Uh, in a school setting, you'll see kids in small groups, typically. Uh, there are some therapists that are very, very fortunate that get to see their kids individually. 
And I shouldn't say that they get to, it, it is on an individual basis. If that's what that student needs and that's what's going to be the very best support for them is to see them individually, then that's what needs to happen. But then you have your students, um, I'm gonna kind of refer back to you, that maybe working on specific articulation sounds, you can group them in with one or two other kids and they have a great time. And it also, I find that it gives them confidence to know that, hey, somebody else is working on this too. You're not alone in your lisp. (laughs) (laughs) And and I find that kids are, are very encouraging to one another when prompted. When I'm encouraging, they're encouraging. And so we get to cheer each other on whenever you make your make good progress or make any progress. We we celebrate the little things. So I'll see groups of kids throughout the day. There may be a time where I will have to do an evaluation. So I'll have to set apart time to go and get a child individually to assess them as needed. Uh, There will be time that I have to set aside for paperwork. And I typically do that before or after school so that I'm not burning up the kids' time that they have there. And so I will work on paperwork to draft up my evaluation results and uh, contribute my part in an IEP. And then there's also times where I will sit in on an IEP meeting. Uh, sometimes I schedule those myself. If I am the, if the child is only receiving speech therapy and not any other services in the school, then I'm the person that's in charge of their, their services. And so in my district, we call that a teacher of record. Different districts may call it different things, but I'm in charge of scheduling the meeting and with the teacher and the parent and the principal or an administrative figure of some sort, and myself, and so we can discuss all of what uh, uh, discuss our plan for the, this child's education. Or I may just sit in on a meeting that is led by um, another teacher, a special education teacher of some sort, and I will just contribute my part and, and give my support and my ideas on what we can do to support that child as well. And then at the, like I mentioned, at the end of the school day, I usually spend some time afterwards doing paperwork, but um, six years into it, I have made myself to leave work at work and I can come home to my husband and I have a one-year-old little boy and I can spend time with them in the evening and, and leave work at work. And so that's, that's a big thing too. Uh, That's there's an emotional key to that as well that we kind of touched on. And, and then also there's a, there's a lot of confidentiality that goes into things. And so I, I have to uphold somebody else's confidentiality in, in what I do outside of work and that I'm not talking about their situation or their, their issues uh, with my family or, or with a teacher that I run into at Walmart. <laughs> I have to, sometimes we have to shut some of that down and we both know that. Um, mm-hmm. We'll discuss this later and we'll yeah. catch up. So you truly do have to leave work at work. <laughs> There's yeah. more to it than just like, because I want to, because you have to maintain confidentiality. Um, so what is, I love asking the little dichotomy of what do you love the most about your job? Like, what do you, what makes it so rewarding for you? And then also what's a little less glamorous about it? So working with children, my what makes it rewarding for me is the sky is the limit for them. No matter their disability or no matter what they're facing or tackling, the sky is truly the limit. And that's what they know. And they will work hard to make the smallest, smallest of gains. 
And so to see their little world open up because now they can say the word that they've been working on so hard, they, they can say it correctly. That is huge in their little lives. Or to be able to, you know, you have your kids that maybe they have autism and they're not able to verbally construct a full sentence, but now they can use a device and they can tell you what they want, or they can tell you that their head hurts. It's not their ears, it's their head. They have a headache. And that's huge. That's huge for them. Then, then you have the families that are affected by that. So you're not just working in this kid's life, but you have this mom that came to you and they have a six-year-old and they say, they said mom for the first time today. That's huge for that mom to get to hear their child call her mama. So there's a lot that goes into that and, and they, they give me credit for that. And I'm not the one to give the credit to. I'm just, I have this knowledge base that I can help support them. And they would do the same for me. And then they do do the same for me. They don't realize it, but they're the reason that I do get up every morning and that I do get to go to work. And then on the geriatric side of things, it's rewarding to get to see somebody make progress. Um, they're wanting to get back to what they used to be, but to see them make the small gains or, or large gains. Uh, my grandpa, for instance, that got me into this whole thing, he regained all of his speech. He regained the majority of his muscle movements. Uh, he, he got back to doing the things that he was doing on a normal basis. And that was huge, huge for him and inspiring to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm inspired. <laughs> so inspired and moved by this vision of what makes your work so purposeful. I, I know that you, just like any other person on the face of the earth, is aware of the concept that even though work can be so rewarding, it's still work sometimes. So like, what is the aspect that's like a little bit more difficult at times? The difficult parts. Uh, I, for me, it's the paperwork side of things. I, I feel like we spend so much time face-to-face -face with these kids or, or with these clients, but we have to document everything, which, don't get me wrong, needs to happen. If, you know, the saying in our field is, if you didn't write it down, it didn't happen. And we have to be able to support ourselves in everything that we're doing. We create treatment plans that we follow, and, and that's documented if, if those if there's changes made to that and we do progress logs so that we can track progress and use data, collect data with each individual that we're working with to show if what we're doing is really helping or not. And if it's not, we need to find a different course. We need to find a different path. How else can we support them? What else can we be doing? So the, the daunting part of it is, is that you're having to document everything and, and document it in a professional way. Document it in a way that it would uphold in a court of law if it were taken to that degree. You're not only backing up this child or this patient, but you're backing up yourself and defending your own license. And so you take a great pride in, in the documentation that you're taking, but it takes up time. And working with children, um, it's not fair to them to be sitting there documenting while engaging with them because they they're not as engaged and so you're spending your time with them but then you're sitting down afterwards recapping that session in your mind writing down the the data that you had collected and interpreting that to be able to use it for your next session how can i change what do i need to do different 
so so that every session is evolving but the daunting part is is the paperwork yeah sounds like you have to be quite meticulous for sure but also you have such a great attitude about it because there's so many professions out there you know that there's so much purpose to them, but maybe the one downside is, or the big one is the paperwork. So it's cool to hear how you still find purpose and then also take pride in that aspect of your job and have a really positive reframe of what that is um, and why you have to do it. So wrapping up, if and maybe you've really had this experience in real life, maybe someone younger comes to you and they say, you know, I think... I might really be interested in going into a career like yours. So if you're sitting down with them, what would you advise they do to just make sure or test out if this is really what they want to do? And then if it is, what first steps would you suggest for them to go after it? Yeah, I I have had this personally and, and I've had college students, even high school students that have come to me and are exploring this field and asked if they can shadow with me, if they can spend a day at work with me. And of course, I have to get permission to be able to do that. But that is eye opening to them to get to see what it is that I'm doing in real life. Steps that they would take, I would say, go shadow somebody. I, I spent time shadowing in a hospital uh, and then and then decided that this is the field that I wanted to get into. But I had no idea how many areas this could lead into and you kind of find your niche along the way. I would say I, my recommendation would be to, to find somebody to go and shadow, ask questions. Uh, even if you're not shadowing, I had several SLPs that had been working in the field for several years whenever I was in college and I was able to call them up and ask them different questions or I would learn different things in my courses and ask a question about that and ask them how that applies to their field and what they do. <laughs> Never be afraid to ask questions. That is such a good piece of advice, especially not just to the high school or college student that might say, okay, I'm going to go have a cup of coffee with Natalie one time to figure out if this is what I want to do. No, continue to do that all the time. You're always going to have new questions. Don't let them go unanswered. Let your new questions be made known to other people, expand your network, all of that. And it's cool to see how you have benefited from doing that too. So my final question to you is looking back over your journey what is one nugget of career advice that you would just love to generally share with the listeners as a little send off? Some career advice. Going back to my grandpa, he gave this advice to me. And his advice was, whatever decision you make, make it a good one. Let me explain what he meant by that. He meant whichever path you're taking, whichever career that you're choosing, put your all into it. Make You chose that, and so make it a good decision. And if you need to make more decisions along that path to change anything, then do that. But make all of those decisions good ones. Feel good about what you're doing. Pray about what you're doing. Go into it with confidence with what you're doing and, and give it your all. Yes. Don't be afraid to dive into something that you've never done before. Yes, give it your all. Oh gosh, I am so motivated by that. Like, you don't have to just make a bunch of decisions that other people deem are good, smart, or, you know, going to help you out. 
really come to that place where you are able to sit there and say, yes, this is my own good decision and I am ready, therefore, to throw my all into it. And if inevitably you come to a place where you're like, that, you know, I, this is just maybe time for a little pivot. I, I honestly can't give this my all. I think I'm meant for something else. Make another good decision. I love that. (laughs) It's okay to make more. It can apply to every area in life, to your career, to your faith. Make that your own. It can apply to your family, to the relationships that you choose. Make those your own relationships. You've chosen those, not because somebody said you had to spend time with that certain person. Yeah. Make those, good, make those good decisions. Yes. Make them. Go out there. Get it. Well, Natalie, thank you so much. I have had so much fun in our conversation and have really loved learning about your field and how purposeful it is. And I just get a little welled up thinking about what an impact you make and what others could do and make a similar impact if they're inspired by what you've said and go after it. So thank you so much for being here and sharing all that you did. Thank you. Thank you. If anything about the career path featured in this episode piqued your interest, don't stop here. Take what you've learned, critically examine any follow-up questions you might have, and network to your heart's content to get the answers that you'd like, as well as make meaningful contacts with professionals in that industry that might be able to help you get your foot in the door. If you have a friend who would love all the detailed insider info shared in this episode, don't forget to pass this episode along to them so we could create a network of people who are empowered with the information they need to confidently make satisfying career decisions that allow them to serve in the station in society they were meant for. Thank you to everyone who has supported this labor of love known as the Job Library by leaving a rating and a written review of this podcast. It sincerely makes all the difference to a budding podcast like this one. If you'd like to support the show, just join in by tapping the stars to leave a really quick rating and better yet, write a few words to leave a written review and subscribe. I hope you enjoy the other Benchable episodes now available to you in the Job Library series and tune in next Tuesday for a fresh batch of interviews with professionals in fascinating, unique, and influential positions. See you soon.